Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Joan Neuberger about This Thing of Darkness, Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible in Stalin's Russia. Joan is professor of history at the University of Texas in Austin and the editor of Not Even Past, a public history website and its podcast series, 15-Minute History. You can find out more about both at www.joanneuberger.wordpress.com. As you know, every so often I like to mix things up a bit, and today is one of those times. This thing of darkness is history, not historical fiction. But it is about historical fiction, specifically the creation of an unfinished film trilogy featuring Ivan the Terrible, directed by Sergei Eisenstein, arguably the best-known filmmaker of the Stalin era. We'll talk more about him and his films during the interview. But in this book, we see evidence of the many conscious and unconscious decisions that go into creating a masterwork, some political, some psychological, but also many creative choices designed to highlight drama, tension, and character change. Since this is a historical study, I'll shorten my usual reading, which I give because I think there's no other way to communicate a novelist's style so important in determining readers' enjoyment. Here is the first paragraph of the introduction, which sets the stage for the discussion to come. At the beginning of 1941, Sergei Eisenstein was feeling defeated. Three years had passed since he had completed a film, and on January 2nd, he confided to his diary that he felt like his broken-down car, lethargic and depressed. A few days earlier, tired of waiting for the film administration to approve his latest proposal, he had written directly to Josef Stalin, requesting him to intercede. When the phone rang on January 11th, it was Andrei Zhdanov, secretary of the Central Committee and member of the Politburo's Committee on Cinema Affairs, calling to say that no one was interested in his most recent pitch, but that they should meet to discuss the film Stalin wanted him to make. We don't know exactly what was said at that meeting. But immediately afterward, Eisenstein began reading and thinking and jotting down ideas about Ivan the Terrible. By January 21st, the possibilities for the project had captured his imagination and would not let him go. He was writing about Ivan the Terrible when he died, at age 50, only seven years later. And now, please join me in welcoming Joan Neuberger. Hi, Joan. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today. Thanks for having me here. I should mention before we start that Joan and I were in grad school together, so we've known each other for a long time. Uh, I ended up specializing in and even writing novels about Ivan the Terrible, and she was then studying late imperial and Soviet Russia. But as you can see, her Eisenstein project has brought our paths together in a quite unexpected but happy way. So tell us, Joan, what drew you to the study of Eisenstein and specifically his never-completed trilogy about Ivan? Well, it, it actually, the idea for this book goes back to a long time when I first decided to start teaching some film courses. I thought it would be a good way to bring students into the study of Russia and the Soviet Union. And I started looking around, um, and uh, it turned out that there was nothing written, or at least very little written, about the history and politics of uh, of Eisenstein's last film, I've Been Terrible. And that really surprised me, because I knew that the film had been commissioned by Stalin, and that um, that it had a long sort of political uh, uh, history. And so it surprised me that no one had really done much writing about the political and historical sides. So I thought I'd write a little article uh, about that. And I had a little bit of travel money. So I went to Eisenstein's archive in Moscow, thinking, well, maybe I, I really didn't know much about Eisenstein. I thought, well, maybe he wrote something about it. And um, when I got to the archive, I realized that I really didn't know anything about Eisenstein because it turned out that he is a, well, he's a, a compulsive writer, a graphomaniac, and he wrote extensively. He filled hundreds of note, uh, uh, like around a hundred notebooks with um, thoughts and uh, ideas and 
uh, his notes on his reading for Ivan the Terrible, and an, another dozens more um, files with photos of um, artifacts from the period and photos of uh, pictures of rulers, contemporary rulers, things like that. So there's a huge amount of material uh, for um, studying this film that hadn't really been tapped. And I thought, well, obviously I have to write something about it. What do listeners who may not have encountered his name before need to know about Eisenstein as a personality and as a film director? Uh, Well, okay, so Eisenstein... Uh, was born in 1898, uh, which means that he was in his 20s in the 1920s, which is the period right after the Russian Revolution, uh, a period of um, some considerable artistic freedom, especially for artists who uh, aligned themselves with the revolution. Uh, And that meant an incredible, it was an incredibly creative uh, period uh, in the context of European avant-garde generally. Uh, and the combination of um, radical art with radical politics produced fantastic um, painting and sculpture and architecture and uh, um, ballet, dance and um, theater, and especially film, which was this radical technology for producing art. And among the filmmakers, um, this really create uh, incredible generation of filmmakers, Eisenstein was really recognized as the, as the leader. Uh, he was the most innovative, the most the most thoughtful about uh, how to make films at this period and also how to make revolutionary films. He wrote a lot about filmmaking. Um, and in fact, he's, his writing from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s is considered sort of the first body of film theory. Um, and then Pachumkin, his second film, made him world famous. Uh, he writes in his memoirs that um, the day after it, it first premiered, he woke up and he was famous, um, which was really heady for a 27-year-old you know, uh, pretty much novice film director. Um, and it also, uh, that film in particular, became a kind of symbol of what Soviet filmmaking could do, what uh, radical, the combination of, of um, innovative filmmaking and radical politics could produce. Uh, now, and that period of his, of his career has been studied a lot uh, and celebrated as a kind of, uh, well, for what I was just saying, celebrated for um, his mass heroes and also celebrated as a kind of anti-Hollywood. Hollywood was already famous for its culture of celebrities and stars and Eisenstein and a lot of other film directors sort of um, uh, thought of the the hero of the films as the masses, groups of people and so on. Um, so that period's been studied a lot and a lot of, and even today people look at the later period in his career as being a kind of tragic or abject submission to Stalinist realities. Um, you can still find people today who say that Stalin, uh, that Eisenstein gave up montage, his early ex- radical experiments with editing, um, for a kind of pro-Stalin, propagandistic, monumental, epic style. Um, and that's been revised since then, but... Um, what I really try and do in this book is, is really try and challenge that reading of, of Eisenstein's later career uh, and show that he that Ivan the Terrible in particular was an incredibly innovative uh, film, both in terms of the um, aesthetics and artistic choices that he was making and in terms of its politics. So you actually read this 100 notebooks and all of the rest of the stuff. How did you manage to take all of that information and figure out what it was that you were going to focus in on to make the important points that you make about the film. Yeah, it it actually took me a really long time to figure out what to do with all this material. The archive is huge. Um, The literature about Eisenstein is huge. Um, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to focus on the political and the historical, uh, which I thought had been sort of overlooked. Um, and then, uh, you know, gradually I came to realize that, um, that the political and the historical are really made sensible through aesthetic and visual choices, through na- choices about narrative. So that, so I sort of gradually honed in on the idea that, um, that the, that the two are sort of intertwined and that that's really what I wanted to talk about. Before we go on, because I realize that I'm already doing this, uh, I would like 
the listeners to understand that the Russian pronunciation of uh, Ivan uh, Grozny's name is Ivan. And so uh, in English, we say Ivan the Terrible, and it's so ingrained that I say Ivan the Terrible also. But when we are talking about him otherwise, we're probably both going to say Ivan, and it's the same person. Right, exactly. I go back and forth and I don't even notice it. So, <laughs> Right, me neither. Um, so as we know from the introduction, uh, Eisenstein began his Ivan project at the personal request of Josef Stalin, uh, a commission which must have been, I would think, both terrifying and thrilling in the sense that all of the state's resources would then be put behind the film. Um, but why did uh, Stalin want the film to be made and why did he pick Eisenstein to direct it? Uh, well, this was part of a, a larger campaign on the part of Stalin and the and um, his immediate entourage uh, to reclaim the history of Russia, to sort of partially reject the revolutionary uh, um, histories of Russian history um, and uh, look back to pre-revolutionary rulers as um, models or um, as um, to give to give Stalin a, a pedigree in. Um, the long story of Russian history. Um, Peter the Great, who ruled at the beginning of the 18th century, was a much easier um, uh, figure to do that with. Uh, and there are lots of films and stories and rewriting of the history of Peter, um, sort of easier for, for people to overlook his role in cementing things like serfdom um, and just sort of focus on his role as creating uh, the empire and making Russia a powerful state in the European state system. But Ivan's a lot trickier um, because he's most famous for his campaign of violence against the Russian people. Um, and that itself is very uh, controversial uh, among historians, but it, it was what he was famous for, what he was infamous for. And this campaign, Stalin's commission of these Eisenstein's film and um, plays and novels and so on all came on the heels of the great purges of the period in the late 1930s uh, when um, Stalin unleashed his own campaign of terror terror against um, people in the Soviet Union. So Stalin wanted to justify that violence uh, as um, necessary for stabilizing revolutionary power and he really wanted everyone um, to be able to do that as well. But it was tricky for these artists and really for anyone else to manage that commission. Uh, why he picked Eisenstein is partly prestige, partly a kind of power move um, to make sure that Eisenstein sort of understood his place as being um, a, a filmmaker who served the state. Um, and also because his previous film, Alexander Nevsky, um, represented Nevsky as another medieval ruler, as a kind of one-dimensional um, figure, kind of heroic, um, state-building, uh, militarily successful figure. And he kind of expected that Eisenstein would portray Ivan the Terrible the same way. He was very surprised. <laughs> he was very surprised. He did not get what he wanted. So Ivan the Terrible was a historical figure and a controversial one, to put it mildly, as you just hinted. But the real thing here is that as dramatic as the history itself is, Eisenstein wasn't making a documentary. He was not bound by historical rules of evidence. He was trying to create a work of historical fiction, which is why I'm interviewing you here on my podcast. More importantly, a work of art. So how did he balance the demands of history against the demands of film? What kind of compromises did he have to make? And how did he see history as part of his project? Uh, well, early on, Eisenstein decided that he didn't want to make Ivan the same kind of one-dimensional character that he had made Alexander Nevsky. He always thought that Nevsky had been a, uh, just too much of a compromise. Um, and at the same time, he wanted to explore the things that he had been preoccupied with. Um, he quickly realized that Ivan's biography offered him material that allowed him to work through many of the ideas that had been preoccupying him um, for a decade or more. Uh, like, um, like a lot of other modernist thinkers, he saw structural similarities between 
individual development, biographical development, and social or historical development. And um, he'd always been a historically minded artist, so he was able to work out and put on film um, his dialectical theory of history, uh, psychological development, um, and of the connections between the emotional and intellectual sources of uh, of um, uh, of historical development. So that was that was sort of the thing that he that he brought to the film. Um, he and and it's true that he wanted that he did fictionalize and play with the historical record, uh, but he also did extensive reading in the sources because he wanted to make a film that was, um, to his own mind, historically true. Uh, he wanted to find this what he what Russians call the laws of history or the rules of historical development, um, and he wanted to um, create a portrait of Ivan that was largely truthful, even if it was more psychologically truthful than historically truthful, which is, um, I think, probably what a lot of your, your authors of historical fiction say. He was particularly interested in the, a sort of dialectic between the sensory emotional motivations of individuals and the intellectual logical motivations and the way that they, that, that, that um, combination of things bring, uh, brought about transitions in people's lives and also in social history, right? He, he wasn't going to justify violence. He wasn't going to, he wasn't interested in justifying Yvonne's career, um, but he did want to explain it. Um, so it wasn't just a critique of absolute power that he was interested in. He says very early on that he, that he had no intention of whitewashing uh, Yvonne's history um, or wiping away a drop of blood from his record um, but he wanted to explain how Yvonne became the character that he became. And uh, he says in his, in his notebooks that he wanted to explain what he calls the most atrocious things. Uh, and at the same time, he thought long and hard about how an artist can convey his own ideas and feelings to an audience through um, a work of art. Uh, so he was, he was um, some, of the, some of the changes that he made in the historical record had to do with his ideas about um, conveying the most important points, which for him was this dialectic of emotion and uh, reason um, through a character on the screen. So his choices about adapting the historical were, were based on that initial set of, of ideas of motivations. So who is his Yvonne? Well, I, the most important thing, and, and you know this, Carolyn, is that um, we actually have historical sources on Yvonne's childhood. And this is one of the first things that, that Eisenstein read, and he tells us, um, actually in a published article, that Yvonne's childhood is really uh, one of the, the first things that came to him and one of the most important factors in Yvonne's development as a person. Um, he wanted to explain, one of the questions that he asked throughout in sort of explaining what kind of character Yvonne became was... Um, uh, how an innocent child um, can become a bloody tyrant, right? Uh, and Yvonne talks about his suffering in, in these sources. Yvonne talks about his suffering as, in childhood, about the boyars taking advantage of his young age, the boyars being the Russian, uh, the equivalent of Russian aristocracy, um, the murder of his mother. Um, and this was all very powerful for Eisenstein, uh, who also had a, a privileged but traumatic upbringing. His father was a prominent architect. His mother came from a wealthy merchant family. He grew up in um, the Russian colony of um, what today is Latvia in the city of Riga. Um, but the, the real dramatic moment in his life was when his parents got divorced. Uh, he ended up living with his father, who was very overbearing. So, um, uh, so for him, the dynamic of being a vulnerable, innocent child and um, dealing with the traumas of childhood was really a key factor in Yvonne's development. Um, and then he combines that with his theory of history. So this is a little complicated, so I hope, I hope um, our, our listeners can bear with me for a second. But he believed that both individuals and historical societies really um, constantly have access to their original experiences and their most primitive and intuitive and non-logical um, uh, and, and sensory emotional 
uh, experiences at the earliest stages of their history. And not only that, not only do we have access to those things, but we're continually returning to those experiences. So if you think of history and of time, not as a kind of straight line that moves forward or upward in, uh, in history or in, in biography, but if you think of the model as a spiral staircase, um, Eisenstein thought of history and biography as a kind of spiral. So you move forward and upward like you would go up a, a staircase, but you're continually circling back to these early experiences um, as, and then moving forward again, circling around and remembering your earliest experiences and then moving forward again. So for the character of Yvonne, the original traumatic death of his mother, his sense of abandonment, his sense of lonely, loneliness and, and vulnerability in childhood, um, and his, um, the, the, the murder of his mother by the boyars, which left him abandoned, um, uh, left him with also all those things, but also a real desire for revenge. Um, and that formed him. And throughout the film, Eisenstein gives Yvonne and us visual cues that, that show us Yvonne constantly returning to this original experience, this early experience. And one of the most powerful of these are the Orthodox frescoes that surround almost all the action. And there, uh, Eisenstein writes in his notebook that he wants them to be overwhelming the way they were for Yvonne when he was a child. Uh, and overwhelming throughout the um, the setting, so that uh, Ivan, even as a as a young adult and as a an older dictator, um, uh, is constantly reminded of this of this early childhood experience, and these often cue his his return at moments of um, at moments of transition. So that experience of vulnerability didn't lead to empathy with um, like other vulnerable people, but rather to revenge. And so in addition to his main mission in life, which is to found the great Russian state and to subordinate the boyars to the centralized power of the czar, in addition to that main sort of heroic motive, um, Ivan is always motivated by revenge and a desire for revenge against the boyars. And that's quite different than the sort of purely political um, subordinate, sort of necessary subordination of the aristocracy to the centralized power of the of the early modern state. Something that really takes place all over all over Western Europe at the same time too. But, he, but by being motivated by this desire for revenge and willingness to use violence, this emotional trauma that repeatedly leads him to greater and greater violence against his political enemies. Um, that's that's an additional motivation, and for for Eisenstein, that is the source of the real tragedy of absolute power and the real tragedy of Russian absolute power. So one of the things that, um, well, all creators of fiction do it to some degree, but it's particularly the case in film, is that you have to simplify the number of characters. So Eisenstein has all kinds of creepy boyars, you know, running around in the background and so on. But he really focuses in on two childhood friends of Ivan's. Um, one is uh, Fyodor Kolichov, uh, who becomes Metropolitan Philippe over the course of the films. And uh, the other is Prince Andrei Korpsky. These two friends kind of mirror Ivan in different ways. They, they contrast with him, but they're also like extensions of him in a way. Um, I wonder if you could talk about them. Sure. So in addition to, so, so this film is, is um, organized according to a number of different layers of sort of narrative structure. So in addition to the spiral staircase I was just talking about, Eisenstein also organizes it um, as what he calls a fugue, like a Bach fugue on the theme of power. So um, in, in that sense, what he does is he, he, he takes Yvonne as the theme and Yvonne's conflicts over power. And Yvonne is constantly conflicted, constantly asking, am I right in what I'm doing? Um, uh, conflicted over the things I was just talking about is sort of personal and his public roles. Um, and he projects those onto Yvonne's relationship with other characters. So he takes these internal conflicts and makes them conflicts with other characters. And then also shows, as, as you said quite correctly, that um, characters then can themselves be two different sides of this conflict. So um, 
Kalichov and Kurbsky represent different kinds of conflicts that Ivan has about the nature of power. Kurbsky, historically, he criticizes Ivan for centralizing power, for demeaning the boyars, for um, the violence and the humiliation that Ivan visits on the boyars. And this is one of the main reasons why Kurbsky um, justifies his treason, his going over to um, to Poland-Lithuania, uh, and um, uh, but and Eisenstein knows that, but he follows uh, the historian Vasily Kluczewski in seeing Kurbsky actually as being exactly like Ivan. Um, that is, he doesn't actually. Um, object to Ivan's centralizing of power and modernizing the Russian state, but he's jealous. He, so he's not opposed for intellectual reasons, but in fact for emotional reasons. And this plays perfectly into Eisenstein's concept of the personal and the political and the emotional and the rational. Um, so what Eisenstein then does is adds emotional motives to um, Kurbsky's uh, uh, opposition to Ivan. Um, and he adds another tragic motive, and this is a purely fictional part. He makes Kurbsky in love with Ivan's wife, Anastasia, and Anastasia also being um, tempted and um, uh, tempted by Kurbsky's love. So Ivan, I mean, so Kurbsky wants both Ivan's crown and his wife, um, and uh, and um, that. Uh, so Eisenstein portrays him as not just a traitor, but a uh, weak personality, someone who doesn't really have um, uh, ra reasonable opposition to Yvonne's um, centralization. Philippe doesn't want either Yvonne's crown or wife, and he takes exactly the opposite tack. He takes a, he uses the exact opposite strategy. Rather than um, actively trying to get Anastasia to come over to him, as Kurbsky does, or actively committing treason, uh, Philippe, Fyodor turned Philippe really just wants to retreat to the monastery and um, he's critical of, of Yvonne's centralization and demotion of the boyars but he doesn't want to have to do anything about it it's only when um, but then when um, Philippe's own relatives are threatened by Yvonne uh, and in fact executed by Yvonne uh, that, um, that Philippe takes up an active uh, a role in opposition, but he still doesn't want to use violence um, against Ivan, which some of the other boyars uh, want to do at this point. He tries to trick Ivan into um, giving up his um, violent and centralizing ways uh, with a play. With a, it's kind of a, a Hamlet-like mousetrap-like play within a within a film, play within a in a play. Philippe's opposition to Ivan are philosophical and moral, and he takes the kind of moral high ground. He refuses to bless Ivan uh, um, at um, a, a critical moment in the film. And at that point, Ivan decides to have him, to have Philippe executed. The curious thing about them, though, is that even though Kurbsky is the one who takes active opposition to Ivan, it's Philippe who takes this more passive philosophical moral role who somehow seems to win out. So even though he's, he's executed off stage, we never see him again. Um, but his critique of Yvonne really hits home and um, sort of lurks over, I think sort of shadows everything else that, that comes later. Um, so neither of them actually is in the difficult position that Ivan is in. That is, neither of them are in the position of being the actual ruler where they have to find some kind of balance between their personal and their political or their moral and their historical. Um, so they both have it a little bit easier, but it also makes, uh, but, it, but their, their conflict and their personalities, their roles brings Ivan's conflict over the personal and the political into focus. So this brings me to certainly one of my favorite characters, I suspect <laughs> many people's favorite character because she is so bad. Um, Ivan's aunt, uh, Princess Yefersinia of Staritsa, and her son, uh, Prince Vladimir of Staritsa, are also uh, important contrasting roles uh, to Ivan. Uh, so they're part of this fugue that you mentioned. Uh, okay, first, 
it's, it's really curious to me that you, that she's one of your favorite characters, sort of evil skulking, um, uh, aunt who's try, always trying to, um, uh, start conspiracies against Yvonne and so on, because she's actually one of my least favorite characters in the, in the film. And I think this probably has to do with, uh, the history of how she got the role, how Serafima Bierman got this role. Um, Eisenstein really wanted a different actress to play the role of Yefrosinia. Uh, he wanted um, a great comic actress, Faina Ranievskaya, to play the role, and he did um, a film shoot, uh, um, test with her and really basically offered her the role. Um, but uh, the head of the film industry, Ivan Bolshakov, refused to let Ranievskaya play the role. He claimed that it was because she was too Jewish-looking uh, and this was a period of um, increased anti-Semitism, or uh, which is sort of more than ironic, but also ironic. It was Russia was fighting Nazi Germany at the time. Um, but in any case, he thought that Ranievska's features were too Jewish to allow her to play the role of a, of a uh, boyar princess. Eisenstein refused to give in, though, and he fought for almost a year uh, against um, using any other actress, but finally he was forced to give in. One of the reasons that he really liked Ranievska, and she's a really fantastic actress, is that she has this sort of combination of characteristics that he loved, sort of dialectic, dialectical character. She could be both um, sort of uh, tragic and, and serious and conspiratorial, but she was also a great comic actress, and he just loved that combination of comedy and, and serious tragedy. Anyway, so for me... Um, Bierman, who plays Yefrosinia, never quite, never quite captures what um, Eisenstein wanted. Though you're absolutely right, she's always skulking around, and it's just you know it's hard to take your eyes off her. Especially in contrast, she's sort of a she's she's coded as a male character. Um, she has she's she doesn't have any real um, female characteristics um, for most of the film. Whereas her son, Ivan's first cousin and the person who is next in line for uh, the, the throne, uh, Vladimir Staritsky, um, he's coded as um, a young child, as female. He has long, uh, delicate blonde hair. Um, he's clean-shaven, unlike a lot of the characters in the play, until the very end when he sprouts a little beard. So in this case, their mirroring of each other is also a kind of reversal of gender roles. And Eisenstein uses that in this case to create a kind of grotesque effect. Um, his rival for power is portrayed as being very weak. Um, he's not only childlike, but his mother is constantly pushing him forward, um, creating new roles for him to take, um, which she clearly wants to take herself as a kind of more active character. Um, she's also paired in Eisenstein's notes with Yvonne directly. He calls, Eisenstein calls her Yvonne in a skirt and also a devil in a skirt. Um, and he sees them as being very similar. She's a risk taker. She's active. Uh, she recognizes the problems of power. She's willing to do what she needs to do um, to get power. Um, and in that sense is very much like Yvonne, but um, partly because she is... Um, in this dialectical relationship with her son, she's never quite, at, she's never can really quite match Yvonne's willingness to, to go the distance to, um, to um, uh, get what he needs. As far as Vladimir goes, um, children play a really special role in the film. Like pretty much everything else we see um, and pretty much everything else that happens, children are part of this vast network of images with multi-layered meanings. So of course, Vladimir is sort of childlike personality um, makes us think of Yvonne as a child, this, uh, this transformative experience uh, as a child. But it also, the, the childlike sort of pre-logical, purely intuitive sensibility um, lets children see through adult masks and maneuvers. And um, uh, Vladimir um, is one of the few people in the film who reacts against all the, all the efforts to gain power. He's appalled when Yefrosinia, his mother, um, announces to him that she is going to have Ivan murdered so that Vladimir can take the throne. Um, and it's one of the really dramatic moments, emotional moments in the film. It's also one of the few places where we see the camera actually move 
um, at, it tracks to the side, which is very rare for Eisenstein, and it really brings out this moment as a, a moment of uh, that that's very different from everything else going on in the film. So Vladimir is both Ivan's rival for power, and he he's Ivan as an innocent child being manipulated by his mother. But at the end, we see another side of Vladimir. Um, Eisenstein always wants us to see the villain and the hero, the hero and the villain. At one point, he calls this a dab of color from the opposite palette. Uh, and um, to, at, the, at the very climax of the film, um, Vladimir has been saying all along that he doesn't want any power. Who would want to be czar, he says. And, uh, but Yvonne realizes that even this childlike innocent wants power, just like everybody else. And this is the moment when we realize that he's sprouted this little beard, right? He becomes a little bit adult. He becomes a little bit... Uh, hungry for power like everyone else in the film and also no longer innocent, willing to sort of play along in the conspiracy that um, was supposed to murder Yvonne. Eisenstein had trouble with both his uh, female leads and the other one we're going to talk about is Anastasia, who as you mentioned was Yvonne's first wife and she is Yefrosina's opposite. And yes, Anastasia is the exact opposite. She's too good to be true. I think of her as the sort of um, model of socialist realism in the film. She looks up at Yvonne the same way a lot of socialist realist uh, um, painting characters in paintings or in other films look up at Stalin, just with this pure uh, love, rapture. Um, but she still loves Kerbsky. And this is another case of um, the, the absolutely pure, innocent of having a little bit of um, of the villain in the in the heroic, um, so she reveres and is loyal to Ivan outwardly, but she also really wants Kerbsky, though she resists and remains loyal to Ivan. Um, with Anastasia, it's her death that's really important to the to the plot of the film and to the multiple meanings of the film. Um, of course, there are many historians who thought that her death was what led Ivan to transgress the norms of power in the 16th century and um, unleash the, create the Aprichnina and create the, the, his own private army to go um, rampage through the, through the country. I mean, Eisenstein has Ivan hand Anastasia the poison that kills her. And this has a lot of different responsibilities. So Yefersinia has created this little poisonous drink and put it in this chalice. She murders Anastasia but she separates her, herself from her responsibility by having Yvonne do that. Yvonne also has other people carry out his murders for him. So this raises a, an, one of the important questions of the film, which is who is actually responsible for the murders and the violence that take place? Um, it's true that Yefrosini is planning the murder before this scene, but she goes through with it after Yvonne threatens Boyar Power explicitly. Um, so, of course, she goes too far, but she's doing it for the sake of her family. So it kind of raises the question, I think, of when is political murder justifiable uh, and who is responsible for the violence that takes place? So uh, as we move into part two in particular, in part because of Kurbsky's flight, um, we start to see uh, the contrast between Russia and what was then probably its arch enemy, uh, Poland, Lithuania. And we see the appearance of Sigismund Augustus of Poland, Lithuania, um, in what to me is a very amusing portrayal because he was a known ladies' man, but here he is definitely very effeminate. Okay, well, this is another part of the fugue on the theme of power, and it's one with a lot of, uh, of multi layered meanings. But Eisenstein sets up another set of mirrors, and these are the rulers Sigismund of, of Poland, Lithuania on the one hand, and Bess, as he calls her, um, or Elizabeth I of England. Uh, and gender is really critical here. Um, throughout the film, really, gender is, is pretty fluid and reversible. Um, a lot of the characters have gender markers, sort of conventional gender markers of the opposite gender. Um, so I'll come back and talk about that for a second. But first, um, Elizabeth is obviously woman, um, and apparently weak, but really strong. And Sigismund uh, is a man who performs effeminacy and homoeroticism, and he is characterized as being strong, but is in effect really weak politically. So Eisenstein is playing with a lot of conventional associations with the different genders, um, and uh, 
and in particular in uh, Sigismund's court. Well, and that's partly because Eisenstein was forbidden from making from uh, shooting the scene with Elizabeth in England. Um, so we, what we have are his notes about it. We have um, the photo tests with one of the uh, um, prominent male directors of the period, Michael Rom, playing Elizabeth. So she was going to be played in drag. So, uh, to just reinforce this idea of uh, fluid, non-binary gender relations. So what we see at the very beginning of part two is Kurbsky's fled Ivan's court, and we see him declare his loyalty to, um, to Poland, to Sigismund, with what is really a hilarious, flirtatious parody of a, a kind of oath ritual that very clearly, I think, um, visually suggests sex between the two men. And then Sigismund's courtiers have really absurdly exaggerated. And in the screenplay, actually, that was published, Eisenstein calls the courtiers effeminate, um, and they mirror the a Prechnik costume, which is a very sober black kind of wool coat with fur collars. Um, so what function did all this play? Well, one, one, of the, one of his main beliefs was that conventional binaries and oppositions, oppositions of sex, of class, of East and West, for example, are obviously differences, but they're differences that mask similarities, um, or what he calls interpenetration or merger. So he considered bisexuality to be really fun, a fundamental trait, a fundamental human trait, um, but something that was always in conflict with, or in dialogue with at least, with our identity as binary male or female. And, and that's very contemporary, actually, as more people explore their, their non-binary identities, which I think is, is, is really interesting. This was the same with East-West divisions, so, which had special resonance in Russia, situated between East and West. Dostoevsky once said that in, uh, in Asia, Russians are Europeans, but in Europe, Russians are, are Asians. I'm paraphrasing Dostoevsky there. But Eisenstein's also playing with this and comparing the Kremlin uh, with um, Sigismund's court in, uh, in Poland, um, and they're visually very, they look very different, but are very similar in, 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 uh, in sort of power structures. So like everything else in this very, very complex film, sex is played out in multiple layers and networks of ideas and images. But one important one is that when Ivan asserts himself in part two, he says, I will be what you say I am. I will be terrible. And at that moment, it's really a key moment in the film um, he actually has cut all his human ties with other people, with Jefferson,ia with Philippe in particular in that, sim, in, that, in that scene. But he's asserting himself as superhuman, as, a, as above human, uh, other human beings, as more great and more terrible and more awesome than any other human as a kind of superman. And so he's, um, he's, he's actually really kind of asexual, unlike, unlike Sigismund and unlike Elizabeth. Um, He's, he's actually rather asexual rather than binary or even bisexual. Um, he's kind of a non-binary, um, a kind of non-binary, well, non-binary bisexuality is part of that, asserting himself as being above human, the rest of the human species. Um, and I think what Eisenstein is doing here is saying that for all the messy, complicated nature of a sexuality and um, cultural difference and class difference um, and as painful as human relations are because of that messiness and complications, rising above and casting off the human, um, asserting a sort of asexuality um, is even worse. And in fact, it's really sort of monstrous. Um, and from this moment in the film, from this moment forward, Yvonne will tell us more than once that he's free, that he's free of human constraints that um, he's free in a way that allows him to do what he wants and whatever he needs to do. In particular, part two ends with a terrifying scene where um, he says that he's free to do what he wants with his, with his enemies. So, um, so sexuality and gender identity, I think, is really fluid here to call into question a lot of our... Um, a lot of our conventional ideas about sexuality, but also about power uh, and our relationship to power uh, and, um, uh, and the necessity for the, the, the personal in that messy relationship with the political. So how did this play out in the reception of the, the two parts of the film? What did Stalin see? So first of all, uh, first of all, I guess that we should have said this at the beginning, Ivan the Terrible is supposed to be... Um, a three-part film, 
uh, only two parts were finished. And most of it was filmed, most of parts one and two were filmed in evacuation during the World War II in um, Kazakhstan, in what today is Almaty and Almata. Um, and Eisenstein conceptualized this whole narrative as one thing. Part one and part two have very different reception histories, um, uh, in part because they were actually released very much separately. Um, but the main thing to remember is that Eisenstein really conceptualized the film as, as one whole. And he really tried to, part two seems so much more devastating politically, but he really tried to plant the seeds for everything that was going to come later in part one. And he was a little afraid. He wanted to um, release the two films together because he didn't want part one to be seen as too pale or not terrible enough, which in fact is what happened. Uh, I think that in order to see part one as a kind of monumental, um, pure, straight-ahead Stalinist propaganda piece, which is how it was seen certainly in the United States, you have to ignore a lot of what's going on in the subtext of part one. Or you can do what Stalin did, which is not worry about Ivan's increasing violence, his um, desire for revenge, um, his paranoia, um, his conspiratorialness, or any of the other sort of things that uh, we might see as dark sides, or that I think Eisenstein wants us to see, but to just sort of not just ignore those, but to justify them as necessary for state building, for creating the centralized state, and, and, and creating a pedigree for everything that Stalin did. So um, in the Soviet Union, though, the the filmmakers and artists who saw the part one uh, in the sort of censorship board that reviewed the film and decided whether it would be released or not, they were confused by the portrait of Ivan. They didn't see it as a pure monumental epic character. Um, they were afraid of what the way Stalin would see it. And um, that was true also on the Stalin Prize Committee. Um, the, the members of the Stalin Prize Committee, mostly other artists and uh, administrators of arts organizations, uh, saw part one as being um, much too dangerous a uh, portrait of Stalin to recommend it for a Stalin Prize. So the only way that it could have gotten a Stalin Prize is if Stalin himself personally approved it, which apparently he did. Part two comes along just after the Stalin Prizes had been announced for part one and all the other things that won Stalin Prizes. Stalin sits down to watch part two and he finds it absolutely horrifying. He absolutely hated it. When the lights went up after the, after the screening, he said, this isn't a film. It's, it's some kind of nightmare. Uh, and then he and his, um, uh, his circle, Berea is there, a few other people, they just start um, cursing the film. Actually, they have a really strong reaction to it. Um, we have a document that was published um, during Piristroika in the 1980s uh, of a conversation between Stalin, Eisenstein, and Cherkasov, who played Ivan the Terrible. They meet in the Kremlin to talk about part two and about releasing it. And so there we see what Stalin's criticisms of the film were. And he emphasized how Ivan was um, too Hamlet-like, that is, too, too much vacillating, too many returns to childhood self-doubt and vulnerability before actually carrying out violence. Stalin wanted him to be more decisive um, and not worry about all those doubts. Uh, and um, he thought the Apricheniki were, were degenerate, he calls them, and too much like, more like the Ku Klux Klan, as he said, um, than uh, the heroic mass army of um, Ivan or the, pet, the model for the Red Army. But we also have documents that suggest that what's that another reason for Stalin's rage at part two was the homosexuality and homoeroticism that, um, that I was talking about a little bit earlier. Um, there's no real reason for him to call the Apricheniki degenerate. Um, all, there are a lot of different meanings of the word degenerate in Russian, and they were used in a lot of different ways during this period. But um, one of them was associated with homosexuality. And um, the Apricheniki aren't really degenerate in any other way. They really are the loyal servitors of Ivan. They carry out his wishes. But they also are constantly flirting with each other and caressing each other and dancing with each other in ways that um, are very much coded as homosexual. 
uh, and that's that's one of the that's one of the clues that um, I think it's pretty speculative, but I think that there are a number of hints in the documents that suggest that another reason that Stalin really hated Part Two was because of the pervasive homoeroticism in it. This was in 1940, March 1946. Eisenstein had a heart attack at the at the party announcing the Stalin prizes, actually, and he was in the hospital. And Stalin um, immediately has Part Two banned, and it wasn't released until both Stalin and Eisenstein had died. Um, it was finally released in 1958. And that's why Part Three wasn't finished. I mean, in addition to the fact that Stalin might have had a heart attack himself, <laughs> he had to fund the thing. Um, but the main reason was because Eisenstein died. We, yeah, that's right. He didn't have time to finish it. But he also may not have chosen not to finish it, even if uh, he'd had the opportunity to, because he saw the writing on the wall. So what would you like readers to take away from this thing of darkness? Um, well, I, the first thing I want readers to take away is uh, is to go and watch the film. And I really think that it is um, absolutely a, you know, a masterpiece um, and uh, really his crowning achievement. So I really want people to go watch it. That's the, the first thing. The second thing is to to be very clear that this was a politically anti-Soviet, anti-Stalinist film. I argue in the book that um, there's no doubt about this, and I would like people to be persuaded by that. Uh, and then the last thing, and I want people to see the ways that Eisenstein was using these modernist uh, experimental practices to convey the political message that he wanted to convey and still try and get the films released. So I'd like people to see the politics and the history as being... Uh, absolutely inextricable from the aesthetic and literary and psychological side of the film that's more well known. And what about you? Now that this book is behind you, although it really has just come out, um, do you already have another project underway? I do. I actually have two projects underway. One is a, an edited collection to follow up on a book I did with Val Kivelson called Picturing Russia. The new book is a, is a sequel called Picturing Russian Empire. And we are starting to put that together this summer with a conference. And then I'm also working on a new book on Eisenstein and landscape. Um, so Eisenstein wrote a lot about landscape in cinema, which hasn't really been written about. And his ideas about landscape it very much grows out of his ideas about personality and his history in Ivan the Terrible. His ideas about landscape are connected with ideas about sort of a kind of utopian collectivism that I think uh, that I'm, I'm interested in thinking more about. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Joan, and I wish you all success with the new projects. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on. I, I really love this podcast, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to be on it. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Joan Neuberger about this thing of darkness, Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible in Stalin's Russia. Find out more about her at www.joannewberger.wordpress.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.